Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Daniel House Book Club, where we're journeying through the eight books every interior designer and design enthusiast should have read according to Architectural Digest. If you'd like to read along with us, please visit our website, danielhouse.club, and click the Club Bulletin tab for a complete schedule of our first season's readings, or just follow along and be surprised. Today we're reading from the Decoration of Houses by Edith Wharton and Ogden Codman, who I've been referring to fondly as Edith and Oggs because it's less of a tongue twister. I'm your host, Peter Spaulding, and I'm in New York this week, my favorite place in America, possibly the world. And I'm surrounded by great examples of the sort of architecture Edith and Ogden hoped to persuade their readers to create. Whenever I visit, I spend as much time in Central Park as humanly possible. Even though the park is a Victorian creation, I can't help but think how related it is to what we're learning together. The decoration of houses, especially the section we're reading this week, is very much about not getting bogged down in the little details, remembering to zoom out, see the big picture, and employ design ideas that go the furthest in making real impressions. Frederick Law Olmsted, the landscape architect who led the design of Central Park, hated little flower beds because they were, and are, so inconsequential. Instead, he had huge swaths of land altered, digging up earth for little lakes in one place and piling it all back up somewhere else to create little bluffs offering vantage points beyond those lakes. Instead of planting flowers, he planted tiny forests. All this encouraged park visitors to move through and explore the landscape because they could sense some new great experience was lying just beyond. I think we can all agree people continue to love the outcome. Edith and Ogden, or Edith and Oggs, are trying to convey the same sense of movement can occur in a house if you maintain the big picture perspective Frederick Law Olmsted understood so well. Now, a quick word from the Daniel House Club CEO, Alexander, before we move on. For those of you just finding us, Daniel House Club is the place where the job of interior design is made simple. Our members have access to wholesale pricing from over 75 great trade vendors. You can join as a free pro or pro plus member, depending on the level of discount that fits your needs. And shipping is always 10% of your order. Once you become a member, be sure to check out your dashboard which allows you to create furniture schemes with your clients and convert those directly into bills upon approval. Visit danielhouse.club today and start spending less time and earning more money. And now, back to Peter. Today we're looking at Edith and Ogg's chapters on ceilings and floors, entrance and vestibule, and hall and stair. We're starting with ceilings first, which I'm excited about because this is an area I have explored the least in my own work. I have to admit, I'm always hearing designers say the ceiling is the biggest missed opportunity in a house. And and then I go into a contemporary room that has a ceiling that's been painted or leafed or covered in wallpaper, and I think to myself, I really don't like this. I've done a couple special ceilings that absolutely made the project, but these were pretty architectural in nature. Once, I worked on a farmhouse that was built in like the year 2000, but felt like it might have been dated even before it was finished. It had a double-height foyer that was turned 45 degrees from the rest of the rooms in the house. One wall was missing, allowing all the space, including the double-height ceiling, to flow right into the family room before dropping down to a single-height open kitchen. Another wall curved to carry the stairs. 
The house really had no architecture. Everything was cased in that vaguely traditional two-and-a-half-inch stock molding in that really orangey oak that was so popular in the 1990s. I hope to never see that stuff again. The clients did have a lot of Victorian antiques that they'd inherited and mixed with some contemporary industrial pieces, and the effect was not terrible, but it really needed a unifying architectural backdrop to support it. I proposed we basically expire the region's supply of reclaimed barnwood to create a grid of unfinished, rough-hewn ceiling beams layered over a white tongue-and-groove ceiling. The squares of the grid were big, like 8 by 8 or maybe even 9 by 9 I think, and centered on the foyer's huge chandelier. In the end, we used the language of the ceiling to inform the walls too, supporting this weighty design on thickly paneled walls painted a moody blue-green. It's HC133 or 134 from Ben Moore for anybody who's interested. Anyway, this rustic thing I've described is not exactly my taste, but the transformation was complete and the clients and their guests were totally blown away. I think the success was in providing scale and articulation to a space that had none. Edith and Oggs would have a lot to say, do have a lot to say, about why scale is so critical in the success of a ceiling, and why sometimes paint and pattern up there can feel really oppressive, like I've experienced. Wood ceilings, by nature of their construction, always look heavy. They won't be successful if they aren't held up, or at least appear to be held up, by wood-paneled walls or something similarly robust. Without correspondingly hefty walls, these ceilings seem to bear down on you. Any sort of coffered ceiling, no matter what it's made of, will look very heavy if it isn't composed with a strong center, according to our authors, anyway. The 8x8 or 9x9 grid of rough-hewn wooden beams I created back in that farmhouse I mentioned stretched across the ceiling of several irregularly shaped rooms, So the only piece of the grid that was actually one complete, totally horizontal square was in the dead center of the foyer framing the chandelier. There was nothing to compete with the attention this drew. I did my reading and some writing for this episode in one of my favorite rooms in the whole world, the Rose Reading Room in the New York Public Library, designed by the great firm of Career and Hastings. The room is humongous nearly 80 feet wide and 300 feet long, with a ceiling that's over 50 feet high. It's the perfect place for a great composition overhead. And actually, on initial inspection, it sort of seems like you have three equal panels of mural painting divided by deep coffering, which is really not what Edith and Oggs are advising. But when you examine the room more closely, you realize that all four corners are punctuated by gigantic piers that seem to support the whole room, so its dimensions actually narrow at either end. Where this happens, a series of much smaller coffers cover the ceiling. So the three equal panels make up one huge center that stretches across the room and seems to offer windows into the heavens above while the groups of coffering at either end make up the rest of a complete composition. The mural paintings are not filled with a bunch of little birds and cherubs, but just abstract cloud cover. As Edith and Oggs warn, smaller, more detailed elements up there would be totally useless, nearly invisible clutter. We are almost always furthest away from the ceiling, so the scheme up there really does need to communicate only big ideas. 
you're probably not painting clouds on your client's ceiling. So here are a few slightly more relevant tips that our authors provide. In a room with low ceilings, a crown molding that is sort of short but stretches out a little further in the horizontal direction onto the ceiling can actually create the illusion of height. In a big room with low ceilings, a cove or maybe a barrel vault could be a good way to achieve the look of more space, as a great big plain flat ceiling can become a pretty daunting element of a room. Sinuous or especially detailed patterns are sort of disorienting overhead, and our authors would never ever put wallpaper on the ceiling. I'm sure they'd disagree with me, but I do think there are some fairly small rooms, usually bedrooms, whose walls, ceilings, curtains, and bedding are one single paper and fabric pattern, and I think these are very, very successful. Do what you will with this information. Where coffers and the illusion of space beyond might be great on the ceiling, Edith and Oggs hate them on the floor. They're referring to layouts of marble or tile or sometimes patterns in European rugs that give the indication of some kind of three-dimensionality when they mention this hatred. Um, But in general, we interact more directly with the floor and rely on it to literally support us and keep us upright. So their thinking is it needs to not only be, but look totally level. Whenever possible, floors should be made of marble or stone, our authors say. Wood is never preferable for them, even though a lot of people seem to think it makes a space warmer. They just argue this isn't true. I'm sitting in a room with a wood floor right now, and I'm freezing. And the other day in the stone-floored New York Public Library, I was toasty, so perhaps they're onto something. I think this is a pretty circumstantial assertion that mostly has to do with stone feeling more dignified, which I'd have to concede. They do like old French parquet floors, though, especially when the individual pieces of wood do not contrast too greatly with those around them. I think the old parquet patterns scale wood up to the level of being able to make a meaningful impact in a a room, as opposed to the ceaseless unidirectional lines of regular wood. They're not as clearly as opposed to -to wall-to-wall carpet as many contemporary designers and consumers seem to be, as long as it's simple and of the same color from room to room. They favor dark colors because they say a room should feel its weightiest at the bottom. I rarely wear white pants for a similar reason, but I'm not sure I'm totally sold on this as a steadfast rule. Stair runners, they say, should always be of a strong, solid color. Masses of single color are one of the best tools to create effects in design. Little patterns, I think, would be for them like little flower gardens were for Frederick Law Olmsted, detractors from the big picture. Better to plant thousands of red begonias that can make that can be seen a mile away than distract with little dots of color here and there. This could be a good time to interject and say yesterday I got to visit Edith Wharton's house, the Mount, in Lenox, Massachusetts, much of which which was designed with Ogden Codman. Though I'll describe it in a bit more detail here shortly, one thing I noticed a lot was the flooring. I love terrazzo and just put it in a client's kitchen and stayed in a little villa where it was everywhere, but I did not like it in Edith's drawing room. It could have been that the color was the same as the stuff in my elementary school hallways, or that the room's rugs seemed too small, or maybe that the furniture wasn't in a place that I felt like inner intimate conversation would be encouraged. Whatever the case, 
I would have much more likely spent all my time in the adjacent library where there's a really beautiful old French parquet floor. It exuded warmth the minute you stepped in. I'm only bringing this up to point out that even though our authors write with great authority, they were just people like you and me, and sometimes they were wrong, or just being subjective, or their opinion, maybe based in really good reason, was just one of many. Did you know you can plan all of your purchasing for a design project right from your Dana House Club dashboard? Once you're logged in, just click Dashboard to get started creating projects. The new project button allows you to enter details of the project you're beginning, including the percentage of your Daniel House Club discount you want to pass along to your client. After you've created a project, use the new board button to break your project out into rooms. Then start shopping. When you come to a product you want to add to a room, use the add to project button to put that item into a particular client's room. Once you've shopped for everything you want your client to see, Click Share so they can see the items you've selected. When they approve your perfect scheme, you can purchase on your client's behalf or go ahead and click Create Cart to allow your clients to check out directly and we'll mail you a check for your earnings. Your clients are accustomed to purchasing online. Let Daniel House Club do the heavy lifting of procurement and delivery while you enjoy the profits. And now, back to the show. Now let's move on to entrances and vestibules. In house hunting, the number one deal breaker for me is a front door that opens right into the living room. I hate this, and so did Edith and Oggs. According to them, a main living space in a house should be at least two clicks away from the front door, maybe more. The nicest front doors are solid with no windows and strong architectural lines. They do not only seem to, but actually do provide security. A few feet beyond this door, many good houses have another glass door that creates an airlock to keep out the cold. Then comes the vestibule, a much-neglected, often-removed little space delivered to us all the way from ancient Greece, where it might have been as many as three rooms that transitioned a house from public to private space. Similarly, in ancient Rome, the vestibule was one of the series of spaces in a house between the street and its central atrium. Often, The vestibule included a porter's lodge. Almost all the colleges at Oxford still have this ancient arrangement today, and Edith and Oggs are advocating for the vestibule for a similar reason. It's a transition room from exterior to interior. It's a source of protection from weather and intruders, and apparently a place where our authors would have stuck their help to let party guests in and out, just like the porters at Oxford continue to check students in and out of their colleges today. As a protective room, the vestibule should be made of and furnished with impenetrable materials and should be the most austere room, giving off very little of the house's interior character. Walls and floor are best in stone and marble, and the only furniture should be stone-topped tables holding maybe vases or busts. Plaster casts are fine, too. It's a really, you know, low-key environment. If you can't afford marble, wood paneling painted white or gray or some other pale color would work as well. Light fixtures should also be simple and seemingly protective, like big old hurricane glass lanterns. Even though it's huge, Edith's house in Lenox doesn't have a proper vestibule exactly as we've described. It has something better. You enter through central double doors on its ground floor of its three-story white stucco facade into an opening in the middle of the long side of a rectangular entrance hall. So, rather than the hall running through the house, as is so familiar in the center hall colonials all over the United States, this one flanks the front of the house. It has a low 
gently vaulted ceiling, and the plaster walls are treated like those of a grotto, as if dripping with seaweed, which is perfect iconography for a room that's a story below all the important rooms. Feels like you're in the sea. There's nothing to do in this space except enter. At the far right, another set of central double doors carries you through to the stair, fully contained in its own space. On the next story at the top of the stairs, directly above the entrance hall, is the gallery which, which serves to connect all the main rooms of the most important floor in the house. So, the ground floor entrance hall works as a vestibule, and the gallery works as a proper hall, in the ideal sequence of a house which we're about to learn more about. Truly, I've furnished my whole house with items I bought from Club. I have the Godot sofa from Menu. I have an Enlo bookshelf from Forehands. I have the Roberta Ottoman from Nouveau Living. I have several lights from Mitzi and Hudson Valley, and I could continue. The place feels very one of a kind. Even Peter, our chief creative officer, and the most unforgiving critic thinks so, which is saying something. He's even thinking of featuring it in our upcoming issue of the Club Bulletin. So shop Daniel House Club for all your product needs and see how unique your spaces feel. Now we're at the most complicated chapter we're covering today, Hall and Stairs. Last week I said if there's one thing to take away from this book, it's that the walls of classical houses are treated as orders. Here's the second biggest takeaway. The main hall and the stairs of a house do not really occupy the same space or shouldn't. This is a problem we confront again and again in houses in the United States. When I was 13 or 14, a good friend of mine was moving to a new house with her family. As a 13 or 14 year old herself, she didn't have a lot of say in the new house. But when her parents asked if there was anything she'd really particularly like, she said, great prom stairs. And in most houses here in the United States, to have, quote, great prom stairs means you walk in the front door and are immediately greeted with some woefully inadequate interpretation of Cinderella's castle. My friend was only a girl, but adults should probably have more developed senses. I always find these sorts of houses a little promiscuous, and I think Edith and Oggs would agree. A house needs to unfold a bit more before re revealing what many, young and old, consider as one of the main events. The story of a house goes vestibule, then main hall opening to important rooms, and the stair. The only exception to this sequence, as we just saw at Edith's house, and which we can find all over Europe, is in cases where all the main rooms of a house are upstairs. Then, the vestibule can open onto the stair which carries you up to the main hall connecting to all the other important rooms. So, often in a really good house, it's the hall and not the stairs that are treated with great importance. One thing to keep in mind about really grand stairs is that they need to take you somewhere. Four beds and a couple of baths is not a compelling enough reason to ascend the Spanish steps. The aggrandizement of the stair is often cited as one of the major contributions of the Renaissance to the world of architecture. But as Edith and Oggs point out, even then, stairs contained between two walls, or what are called intermural stairs, were seen as grand enough for palaces. Before this period, stairs had been completely concealed either for security or because they were not considered visually interesting. Where there is not room for a hall and a separate stair, an enclosed stair is always preferable in our author's eyes. We've already described their ideal character for the vestibule, which you'll remember as austere and impenetrable. Now let's talk about the character for the hall and the stairs. 
While the hall can be a bit more forgiving than the vestibule, one thing Edith and Oggs aren't too keen on is it being confused with another cozy place to read by the fire. In rambling, Queen Anne houses, and even in the early houses influenced by the classical revival that began in the 1880s and 90s, the hall often grew so large that it had a fireplace and a couple of upholstered chairs and bookcases with books to read from, presumably. The problem with this is that it is somewhat redundant and doesn't consider the hall's actual purpose as something of a public square or maybe even a highway for the home. It's redundant because the hall connects the vestibule and the front door to the comfier rooms of the house that probably should already be filled with books and chairs and a fireplace or two. Even if you put some comfy chairs in the hall, who would ever want to sit there when they could sit in the much more inviting living room and be a lot less in the way? Like on a highway... Edith and Oggs say people are not stopping to look around in the hall, so decorative schemes should be considered for first impressions and not a lot else. The hall isn't a place for small, detailed art or pieces that need to be considered carefully to be understood for their symbolic meaning. Words like simple, forceful, vigorous, and even severe should inform the design of the hall. Furniture here might be straight back chairs and benches for waiting, stone top tables and consoles, and maybe a very architectural cabinet if storage is needed. The best flooring is stone and marble, and where carpet is used, it should be of one strong color matching the stair runner. The best stair rails are often, are always wrought iron or stone in their opinion. Wood shouldn't be considered unless the stairs themselves are wood. Stainless steel was in the works, but not readily available at the time, so they identify steel as a poor substitute for iron since it's impossible to keep clean. I'm sure you've got enough to digest, but before I let you go, let me tell you about one more beautiful entry sequence I just experienced at the Carlisle Hotel, where I finally visited Bemelman's Bar for the first time. Although I've just said hotel, this shouldn't really be understood to be all that different from a residence. Because apart from being known for its air of discretion, the Carlisle is a combination hotel and private residence building with 60 or so private apartments. To pique your interest, it was the former home of John F. Kennedy and one of Princess Diana's favorite places to stay. If you're thinking it sounds really stuffy, you're wrong. It's quiet, but oh so inviting. My brief search didn't bring up any floor plans, so I'm describing it to you from my best memory of my only visit. What I recall is stepping off East 76th Street on the Upper East Side into a small octagonal vestibule with warm white walls and black marble floor that had a white marble octagonal border. The lighting was low and whatever the fixtures were, they weren't loud enough to catch my attention. Exiting exiting the vestibule, I walked down maybe five gentle steps to the sunken lobby or hall, which I think was square and decorated with the same palette as the vestibule. The room had ionic pilasters at all four corners and framing its central openings. To my right was the front desk, which was sunken into the wall and felt like an opening. I don't remember what was straight ahead, but definitely not a major thoroughfare to any place. To my left was a passageway to a beautiful sitting room with an open fire surrounded by mustard-colored velvet or mohair-upholstered armchairs and settees. Continuing through this room, which I really wanted to sit down in for a minute, I passed into a much more narrow hall whose access was perpendicular to everything I've described so far. It too was warm white with a black and white floor. 
Somewhere along this route, I must have passed some stairs or elevators, but I have no idea where, which is sort of the point. If I'd been looking for them, I'm sure I would have found them easily, but they did not announce themselves loudly. At the end of this small hall, I went up a couple of steps into the gallery, which was richly decorated with Turkish red um, and green and blue patterned walls and a little low tables surrounded by red velvet armchairs and upholstered benches filled with pillows along the walls. This room was rectangular with chamfered corners, and in the chamfered corner at the back left was yet another passage with a short, gentle set of four or five steps. After ascending them, I finally arrived at Bemelman's Bar, which was the most richly decorated room I'd experienced. It was low-ceilinged with high leather benches along the curving walls. Above the benches were the most beautiful, warmly colored murals, which were the whole reason I had wanted to come. They were painted by the writer and illustrator Ludwig Bemelmans, who wrote Madeline, the children's book, and after whom the bar is named. The grand piano and the musicians were in the middle of the little space, with hardly any separation from the guests. The whole thing felt like it could have just as easily been a nice little party in my living room as an evening in a famous bar with waiters and pianists and strangers. I will remember that experience forever, and it won't be because of what I drank, which was way too strong for me, by the way, or what was playing on the piano, which was beautiful. It will be about being enveloped by comfort and taken on a journey from the moment I stepped off the street to the time I found my seat in the bar, alongside all kinds of strangers who, for just an evening, took on the feeling of long-lost friends." Architecture, delivered slowly enough, has the power to set the stage for so many great experiences with other humans. So, in your next projects, consider separating your clients' stairs from their front doors and withholding a real sense of intimacy until the house's entry sequence has delivered its inhabitants to the main event. For next week, we're reading chapters 10, 11, and 12, or The Drawing Room, Boudoir, and Morning Room, Gala rooms, ballroom, saloon, music room, gallery, and the library, smoking room, and den. Not working on any of these? Not to worry, neither am I. But as usual, there's still plenty to learn and apply to new types of rooms for contemporary projects. See you next week. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Daniel Haas Book Club, again, please visit danielhaas.club and click on the club bulletin tab for a complete schedule of this season's readings. While you're there, consider becoming a club member. Our interior designer members enjoy the best trade discount in the industry, as well as great tools that make communicating and purchasing with their clients hassle-free. See you around the club. (laughs) 